Divergence, the podcast miniseries. Welcome to episode four in our little mini-series here where we are examining the first three centuries of the Christian faith, and specifically we're looking at Jewish-Christian relations during that time. So you're joining us kind of mid-progress here. We are in the process of building a big case, so to speak. Uh, So if you haven't heard any of the previous episodes, I would urge you to do so, so you kind of know where we are. So as you probably are aware, the subject of this mini-series is the same subject as my book, Divergence, Um, and this is a bit of a companion to that book, this mini-series is. So you don't need to order the book or have the book in order to get something out of this podcast. I think you'll enjoy it either way. But 100% of the prophets from that book are going to fight anti-Semitism around the world. So I would encourage you to buy a copy or 10 uh, if you get a chance, because goes to a good cause. Uh, you can find out more at divergencebook.com or my website, rlsolberg.com. By the way, I keep forgetting to say this. If you're enjoying this, would you do me a favor and give me a rating on whatever podcast uh, platform you're listening on? I mean, this is a new podcast, and I could really use your help spreading the word. So thanks for that. Um, so to give you a little context here, in the last episode, in episode three, we continued our look at the New Testament writings, and we looked specifically at the words and the actions of Jesus uh, in regards to the Jewish people and to Israel. Uh, We also took a look at what the Bible has to say about those who deny Christ. And so today, well, actually, let me me even pull back a little further. In the large picture, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're building. It's sort of a three-stage process. Stage one which we're in the middle of right now, is doing a survey of the New Testament writings on this topic that we're looking at, Jewish-Christian relations. And what we're trying to do here is establish a baseline. And then in step two, or phase two, we're going to then take that baseline and work our way through the writings of the early church fathers in the first centuries of the faith. And then in stage four, I'm sorry, (laughs) stage three, uh, we are going to then look at the state of Christianity, of Christendom, at the close of the Council of Nicaea in 325. And that is going to be the scope of our range. So at the end of the day, did the church veer away from the framework that the apostles and Jesus gave us in the New Testament? Was there a a change in theology? Was there a change in attitudes? That's kind of what we want to look through. So as I mentioned, we're in in part one of that process. Uh, and, And the last two episodes, if you've been with us, we looked at the New Testament writings of Paul, and then we looked at Jesus and the Jews. Now, this time, what we're going to do is we're going to start to take all that data that we gathered, and we're going to start to put together a sort of summary And um, matter of fact, I was hoping we could get through this whole summary on this particular episode, uh, and we do our whole wrap-up here, but there's just, there's too much good stuff that we want to get through, and I don't want to rush it. So we're going to, today, we're just going to look at building, well, I don't want to use the word building. We're going to uh, describe a five-point framework that we have discovered in Scripture about how Christians are supposed to regard Jews and Judaism. So, you know, all this data we've been looking at over the last two episodes, we're going to start to collect that and and kind of summarize it and build this framework that we then later will use. Now, the part we're not going to get to today yet, I'm, I'm pushing this off to the next episode so we can kind of really sink our teeth into it, is the two theological markers that I mentioned on the end of the last episode. So the two theological markers that we've identified that are 
very germane to the Jewish-Christian conflict that we see are, number one, Saturday, Sabbath, versus Sunday, Lord's Day. Uh, You know, that's a contentious issue between Jews and Christians, and we have evidence of this from the New Testament up through Nicaea. So we're going to look at how that um, marker, that that theological uh, position changed over time. And then the second marker, I I call them theological markers, but the second marker we're going to look at is Passover versus Easter. So as we know, modern Christians celebrate Easter and they don't celebrate Passover, what happened? What changed? You know, so those are the two that we're going to look at. Why are we gathering on Sunday instead of Saturday? Why are we uh, celebrating Easter instead of Passover? But again, those are going to be pushed off to the next episode. We'll deal with those in episode five. So let's jump into today's topic, which is the New Testament summary. So we're going to summarize what we've discovered in the past couple episodes in these New Testament writings. As we looked at them, the words of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, and uh, his teachings, as well as uh, what we looked at, the writings and teachings of the Apostle Paul, they've really marked out the, the sort of essential elements of a biblical view of Jews and Judaism from a Christian perspective. And what we found, I, I think, is really interesting because it's not this narrow us versus them kind of approach, right? Instead, a biblical view is a nuanced view. Uh, where we're going to need to hold several ideas in tension. And this is where things get difficult. And, you know, I don't know if this is unique to our modern culture, but there just doesn't seem to be a lot of um, interest, let's say. I don't want to say it has to do with ability, but there doesn't seem to have to, there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in trying to hold these nuanced positions. It's much easier to just sort of swing this big club and everything's black and white and us versus them, that sort of thing. So, Let's look at these different ideas that we need to hold in tension. So first, we need to operate from a foundation of love for the Jewish people and an earnest desire for their salvation. Um, So this is something Paul has clearly marked out. Uh, Again, we looked at Romans 9 through 11 in the past episodes, and that's very, very clearly marked out. And the teachings of Jesus is also really clear about that. A, A love not just for Jewish people, but, you know, for all people. Um, but of course it extends to the Jewish people and this idea that we need to not, uh, oppose them and, you know, wish eternal damnation on them. Our job is to earnestly desire their salvation. Now, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that some Jews have denied Christ and, and been disloyal to scripture and, and been disloyal to God. We saw that last episode. The new Testament is really clear about this. Now, on the other hand, which would probably be what our third hand by now, Scripture's also explicit about Israel's central role in in God's great story of redemption. It is clearly no coincidence or no accident that God called forth Israel, right? He, He called her as a nation and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. They were chosen and they were supernaturally brought forth. Really, you could trace it back to Sarah's womb, as, a, as an elderly woman when she got pregnant, and then from that line uh, descended Israel. And through that nation and that people, down through Moses and David, that was the channel that God ordained through which our Messiah would come, the Savior of the world would come. So we can't deny that. So this kind of balanced and holistic biblical posture, um, I, as I see it, can be captured in, in a five-part 
framework. There's five sort of ideas that we need to all that need to all be held at the same time. So the New Testament teaches that Christians are to number one, recognize Israel's central role in God's story. Number two, we need to acknowledge the failure of Jewish religious leadership uh, then and now. Number three, we need to reject Jewish teachings, or any teachings really, but in our case, Jewish teachings that deny Christ. Number four, we need to understand Israel's future salvation. And number five, we need to, as I mentioned earlier, love and earnestly desire the salvation of the Jews. So holding all five of those things um, in tension is not an easy thing to do. And we're going to look at each of these five points in more detail, but, but first, it's really important that we recognize that in addition to this framework, which speaks you know, specifically to Jewish-Christian relations, the New Testament has a lot to say about how Christians you know, how we ought to teach, uh, treat other people in general. You know, these are instructions that apply to everyone, Jews included. So Jesus taught us to, for example, in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, he taught us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And then in Philippians 2, 3, the apostle Paul said that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And in Romans 12, 18, he wrote, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we've got Jesus preaching this radical sort of grace and humility towards others. Here, Matthew 5, let's start at verse 38, says this, Jesus teaching this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So looking at these sort of teachings about the posture that a Christian should have, this, this idea of Christians in the role of oppressors or persecutors or haters of people, it's just completely unbiblical. It's the antithesis of what Christ taught us. Instead, you know, the job of the authentic follower of Jesus is to love and serve others. And, and here's the thing, Jesus didn't just teach this principle, he actually modeled it for us. Uh, Matthew 20, starting at verse 25, but Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is so countercultural and what we sometimes call the upside down kingdom of God um, that it really sets everything on its ear. And if we start looking at our modern world and how we are to treat our Jewish brothers and sisters in light of this sort of a posture that we're taught in scripture, it changes everything. Now, I mentioned this biblical basis of love and humility, and I, and I want us to keep that in mind as we take now a closer look at the five points of our framework. Number one, Christians are to recognize Israel's central role in God's story. For anybody who's spent, you know, 10 minutes in the Bible, you know that the New Testament theology 
is unquestionably grounded in the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. So the Jewish scriptures, they're the, the, the rich historical and theological soil in which Christianity is rooted. And the Jewish New Testament writers, remember everyone with the exception of Luke that wrote a book in the New Testament was a Jew. They were writing to and for Jews. They were, they were, they were standing unabashedly on the shoulders of the giants of the Jewish faith. There's a Jewish rabbi named Samuel Sandmel, and he's got this uh, great book called A Jewish Understanding of the New Testament. And, and listen to what he writes about, about the Jewish New Testament authors. Quote, The controversies between Jesus and the scribes Pharisees have no referent outside the community of Israel. Jesus' preaching of the coming kingdom could have had meaning only for Jews. The synagogues in which Jesus reads from the prophets, heals the sick, and forgives sins are Jewish houses of worship for believing Jews and not unconverted Gentiles. So the New Testament authors are clearly teaching Jesus as the Jewish Mashiach or Messiah. They called him Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, which translated into Greek was Jesus Christ, Christ meaning. Uh, well, doesn't mean Messiah. Christ actually means anointed, but that's what Messiah means too. So whenever you read Jesus Christ in the Bible, remember that what you're reading is Jesus the Messiah. So the, and these New Testament authors, they also teach the priority of the Jewish people in God's eyes as, as Jews themselves. You know, they would have undoubtedly regarded Israel as, as I mentioned, this nation that was brought forth supernaturally and called by God. You know, we read this in, in Genesis 18. And so consequently, the Gentiles don't replace Israel as God's people, but as we looked at last episode uh, in Romans 11, the Gentiles are grafted into her, into Israel. So it was, it was through Israel, as I mentioned, that God sovereignly chose to bring the good news of salvation to the world. John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. Now in the Jewish Bible, in the Tanakh, God appointed Israel as a priest and a light to the nations. However, as we know, Israel fell into the, to the idolatrous and sinful ways of the nations around her, and she had to be disciplined. So under the new covenant, God appointed the early Jewish believers, you know, led by the apostle Paul, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. There's this Bible teacher named Warren Wearsby who has this great Bible teaching series, and he's looking at Romans 15 and he identifies this beautiful progression in Jewish Christian relations. So he outlines it like this. It's a four point kind of progression. So think about how this chronologically takes place. So um, number one, the Jews glorify God among the Gentiles. And we see this out of Romans 15, 9. And also it's referred back to, or he points back to Psalm 18, 49. Number two, the Gentiles rejoice with the Jews. And that's from Romans 15, 10. And he cites or bases that in Deuteronomy 32, 43. Number three, all the Jews and Gentiles together praise God. That's out of Romans 15, 11 and pointing back to Psalm 117, 1. And number four, Christ shall reign over Jews and Gentiles. And he points to Romans 15, 12, which kind of points back to Isaiah eleven ten. So just let me give you just those four points again in a row, because it's a really cool progression. Number one, the Jews glorify God among the Gentiles. Number two, the Gentiles rejoice with the Jews. Number three, all the Jews and Gentiles together praise God. And number four, Christ shall reign over Jews and Gentiles. Oh, that's so cool. So 
Now, we find even more evidence of Israel's foundational role in God's story when we look at beyond even just Romans. The whole New Testament is just saturated with allusions to and citations from the Hebrew Bible. There are actually over 280 direct quotations from the Jewish Bible in the New Testament writings, which is pretty amazing. And by the way, I don't know if any of you have seen this, but uh, there's this guy named Chris Harrison, um, and together with a uh, pastor... Uh, I forget the pastor's name. They put together this really amazing data visualization. Um, they they tracked like more than sixty thousand cross references that that they've identified. Not just citations, but cross references too um, between the Old and the New Testaments. And they put it. They kind of did a data visualization thing, and it looks like this amazing complex rainbow. It's so cool. I think it's at Chris Harrison's website. You could find it, or you could probably just do a do a uh, Google search, Chris Harrison, and then data visualization or New Testament or something. But it's amazing to see how completely intertwined these two testaments are. They're they're very clearly part of the same exact story, you know. And uh, as we've seen, we saw in the last episode, Paul relied on all kinds of passages from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures, to build his case to the believers in Rome when he was writing this letter, Romans. So, I mean, it just reveals such a a fundamental theological continuity between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. You know, the, the, the New Testament writers as a whole, not just Paul, they base their arguments almost entirely on the Jewish Bible. Um, I mean, I looked up the phrase, it is written, which of course refers to Old Testament uh, writings. So the phrase, it is written, occurs more than 60 times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's referring directly to the Tanakh. You know, Even the, the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia acknowledges that, quote, the New Testament is regarded by Christians as the fulfillment of the prophecies and the teachings contained in the Old. So just like we looked at last week when Paul kind of described the Jews and the Gentiles as part of the same tree in Romans 11 in that analogy he used, in the same way we've got the New Testament authors as a whole revealing that the Old and the New Testaments are two parts of the same redemptive story. The tie that binds this narrative together, of course, I mean, this is the the plot line around which the entire story revolves, is Jesus. He's the Savior promised in the garden that we read about in, in, in as early as Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the blessing to all families of the earth that was guaranteed to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. He's the, the prophet greater than Moses, which we read about in Deuteronomy 18. Um, he's the light for the nations, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49.6. And Jesus, of course, is the promised Messiah and King from the line of David and the tribe of Judah. We see that in 2 Samuel 7. So there's really no ambiguity about it. The New Testament very clearly, unmistakably, portrays Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah that was that was prophesied in the Hebrew Bible and the one for whom the Jewish people had been waiting for centuries. We see that with the man Simeon. Remember in Luke 2.25 in, in Jerusalem, Uh, Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus there to the temple, and there's this man, Simeon, who was described as righteous and devout, and he was waiting for, that says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And again, remember, that means he would not see death before he had seen God's Messiah, the one that was promised. 
We see that again in, in Luke 3.15. It says this, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John, John the Baptist here. So we see this sense of expectation in the Jewish people. And the New Testament clearly portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of those expectations. And also that, you know, the Jewishness of Jesus is beyond doubt, right? He was a Jew raised in a Jewish family in a Jewish town who lived a life of perfect obedience to the Jewish law. We see that in Luke 2.27, Galatians 4.4. And the New Testament tells us Jesus was a rabbi who had uh, Jewish disciples. He spoke in synagogues, regularly visited the temple. You know, he predominantly traveled in Jewish areas, which we looked at a couple episodes ago. Um, But moreover, he, Jesus, self-identified as the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. You know, look at Luke 24.27 says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So again, we've got Jesus opening up the Bible and saying, hey, this is about me. So the New Testament really is proclaiming not just that it is a a Jewish document or Jewish in essence, but it's claiming to be a fulfillment and a continuation of the story that began in the Hebrew scriptures. So our job here is to hold this Judeo-centric understanding of the gospel story um, in tension with these Old Testament prophecies that Israel would fail when the Messiah arrived. Again, we we looked at this last time. Uh, We saw in Romans 9 through 11, it, it was God's plan all along that the gospel of Christ would be given to Gentiles where it would indeed flourish. Um, and so Jesus' command to, in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to make disciples of all nations, that flowed directly from God's promise to Abraham that uh, in Genesis twelve three that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, not just Israel. Um, so the Jews are definitely God's chosen people, right? And, and Israel, again, is the nation that he called forth from Sarah's womb and the channel through which he brought salvation to mankind. However, we need to also bear in mind that God's story of redemption was never intended to o- include only Israel. So number two in our five-part framework is that Christians are to acknowledge the failure of Jewish religious leadership. So you know, while we do not, while we cannot diminish the importance of Israel, really, her failures at the time when Jesus arrived, when her Messiah arrived, we we also can't dismiss those. At that point in history, Jewish leaders had become disloyal to Scripture and disobedient to God. Again, we looked at that in Jesus' conflict with the Jews. He he points that out. So as a result, you know, the, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, failed to recognize their own Messiah and instead they brought about his death. So if you remember when Peter was given that sermon on Pentecost and all, the, all those Jews from all the nations were gathered in Jerusalem, Peter said this in Acts 2.23, he said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So this is pretty amazing. Peter, in one sentence, is giving us this deep, deep theology here, telling us that, number one, This plan was foreknown and understood, which again, we looked at previously that the builders were going to reject the cornerstone. And Peter's pointing that out, that this was ordained. Um, And interestingly, he also accuses the Jews. He's saying, you crucified 
and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So in other words, they weren't physically responsible for his death, but they used lawless people outside of, you know, outside of the law of Moses to kill the Messiah. So, and because of this, through, you know, Israel's transgressions, they were, as Paul tells us, partially hardened, and therefore salvation came to the Gentiles. And again, this wasn't brand new stuff. This scenario was foretold in the Hebrew Bible. And this state of affairs actually continues even to this day. As rabbinic Judaism, they continue and persist in not only denying, but opposing Christ. Number three in our framework is this. Christians are to reject Jewish teachings that deny Christ. And again, we are really to deny all teachings that deny Christ, but that happens to include what Judaism teaches. And so here we can kind of look to the Apostle Paul as the, the ideal model of the Christian posture towards Jews. You know, he held his love for the Jewish people and his desire for their salvation alongside his bold opposition to the, at least to the parts of Jewish theology that reject Christ. So Jesus and the New Testament authors, I mean, are in complete agreement of one accord. They taught this balance as the proper attitude of Christians towards Jews. You, you love and earnestly desire their salvation, but you also reject the parts of their theology that reject Christ. And as we looked at earlier, the, the warnings in Scripture against denying Christ are very severe, and they apply to Jew and Gentile alike. So consider these rather grave words from the Apostle John in 1 John 2, starting at verse 22, it says this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And again, is the Messiah, the word Christ there. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Point number four in our framework is this. Christians are to understand Israel's future salvation. Now, this of the five points, this is probably the one that's, I don't know if I want to say the weakest, but the, less, the, the least stressed in Scripture. Scripture doesn't speak to it boldly or super directly, um, but it is there. Again, we looked at this in Romans. So, you know, Paul, Paul provided us with sort of a eschatological end times perspective of kind of the mystery of Israel's salvation. You know, he taught in 11, Romans eleven twenty five that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in the meantime, the gospel is going to be preached throughout the world. And we're told that the Gentiles will respond to the gospel. And in Romans eleven twenty six, Paul says, quote, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So as, uh, as the theologian Charles Hodge so succinctly put it, quote, the rejection of the Jews was neither total nor final. So, you know, we, we have to admit that the New Testament writers left the specific details about how all this is going to happen. It, it's been left a mystery. But overall, their teaching is pretty clear. The Jewish people have a future in God's kingdom. And then point number five in our framework, we've, we've gone over it a lot, but basically it's this. Number five, Christians are to love and earnestly desire the salvation of the Jewish people. I just think about, you know, given the amount of, of persecution that Jesus endured while he was here with us on earth, I don't think it's unreasonable to imagine that he may have had his fellow Jews in mind when he commanded his followers in Matthew 5.44 to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And as we've talked about, I don't want to labor the point, but, you know, Paul 
modeled this sort of posture in Romans 9-2, in the great sorrow and anguish that he felt for his fellow Jews and his willingness to um, give up his own salvation if his fellow countrymen, if his Jew, fellow Jews could be saved. And, and in Romans 10-1, his earnest desire for their salvation. And again, with, in Paul's illustration of the olive tree, he's admonishing Christians to take no part in anti-Jewish attitudes. And Christians today who want to adopt a proper biblical attitude towards Jews and Judaism, they need to do the same thing. In fact, we're called to hold all five of these points in this framework in tension. Okay, so there we have it. It seems a little early to wrap up because I just want to keep going, but we're going to really get into some deep stuff next episode when we look at those two theological markers. So let's wrap up here. And just to recap, so we've got our New Testament baseline established, our, our five-point framework. And this is the framework that we're now going to keep with us. We're going to take it forward through the writings of the early church fathers and then through uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 and compare not only theology, but also attitudes of Christians towards Jews and how well they align to our five-point framework. So again, just to recap, our five-point framework, Christians are two. Number one, recognize Israel's central role in God's story. Number two, acknowledge the failure of Jewish religious leadership. Number three, reject Jewish teachings that deny Christ. Number four, understand Israel's future salvation. And number five, love and earnestly desire the salvation of the Jews. Okay, so that's it for today. Next episode, we are going to jump into those two theological markers, this idea of Sabbath versus the Lord's Day and Passover versus Easter. In the meantime, again, give me some ratings on this podcast if you don't mind. Uh, check out divergencebook.com or rlsolberg.com. Thanks for listening. Shalom.